Jason's the younger kid today. Are you ready, Jason? Drawn from John chapter 8, when Jesus spoke again, he said to the people, I am the of the yes. Okay, that's right. Whoever follows me will not be in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Thank you for doing the blanks and the non-blanks. All right, for the older kids, Leo wants to go first. I am the one who, for myself, my other witness is the Father who sent me. Very good. Where's Selah hiding? There she is. All, these are all from John 8. Jesus says, You do not, me or my Father, Jesus replied, If you knew me, you would know my as well. He's in a deep argument in John chapter 8 with the religious leaders. Trekker, you are from, Jesus says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world. So I am not of this world, Jesus says. He is testifying to the deity of Christ in John chapter 8. Would you open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Um, this book, as I said last week, is in my mind, certainly written by the Apostle Paul, and I gave a list of reasons we'll quickly, quickly review. It would have been written between his first and second imprisonment shortly before the temple was destroyed, and temple worship is still going on as Hebrews is being written. It is filled with Old Testament quotes, and none of the authors of the New Testament, no one in the New Testament quotes the Old Testament nearly as often as the Apostle Paul. Um, so this book has probably, I think I figured, about eight times as many quotes from the Old Testament as a letter written by anyone else in the New Testament. Um, the fact that he, in chapter 13, mentions Timothy. We're familiar with Timothy. He's in the Bible about 25 times besides First and Second Timothy, but only Paul mentions Timothy. He uses this... Greek word kartetizo in um, Hebrews 13, which is the word we get equip from or perfect from in the English language, and only the Apostle Paul uses that word in the New Testament. He uses it multiple times. Um, and then the primary reason, um, another reason is he closes this book, Grace Be With You All. That's familiar to us, but only in Paul's letters. He is the only one that closes letters, grace be with you, or the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, and he closes all of his letters that way. Um, and he closes this one specifically, grace be with you all. And the letters that he is writing during this same span of years, First and Second Timothy, Titus, are closed exactly the same way, grace be with you all. So I think the fingerprints of Paul or all over this letter. I was thinking this morning that um, 
the first thing that would happen if Paul somehow were here is I would sit down immediately and hand this message over to him. The second thing that would happen that Paul would do in taking you through Hebrews chapter 1 is you would use only the Old Testament. You say, well, that's what he would have done because it wasn't written yet. No, that's what he would do today. Because after Paul's introduction in the first four verses, 100% of the rest of Hebrews 1 is derived from the Psalms. So we think of Jesus from the cross um, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a coronation messianic Psalm 22 in the first verse. Matthew and Mark give us that quote as one of his seven cries. He's probably reciting Psalm 22 from the cross. And Psalm 22 begins with the anguish from the cross, and it ends with the coronation of the king. So he is demonstrating to the world, not long before that, he tells the Pharisees, Um, that he is the king, and his cross and resurrection will prove that to them. Um, When he talks to his disciples post-resurrection in Luke 24, he says, everything written in the law and the Psalms and in the, the prophets must be proven true. And he tells them, I taught you all of these things while I was still with you. When you think of that, the book of Psalms, I was thinking this morning that probably the book in the Bible that is read more than any other book is the Psalms. And it is because the volume would reach out to, when they would give out New Testaments, what would be included with that? The Psalms. And I think it's because we, we, as human beings, we see the Bible as a book of remedies. So when people are in trouble, They read letters written by trouble that are comforting, which most of the psalms are, and they read the psalms, I would dare say, because they're not threatening. It's not going to tell me to do anything. So I think for those reasons, people will will look to the psalms as, as a remedy or a pill or something to take in their discomfort. When we read um, through the psalms, and we mark up our Bibles with all the places in the Old Testament that they are found, it changes entirely how we see the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with hundreds of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ. There are 17 Messianic Psalms Paul is going to be drawing from then in Hebrews chapter 1 that are Psalms written about Jesus about his coming, about his dying, about all of the things around his death. He fulfilled 300 of them the first time that he came, and there are more than that that he is still going to fulfill, and these things are written down in the Psalms. So these messianic Psalms tell the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the coming of Christ again, and his setting up his kingdom. And we read them as if it's poetry, which it is, but we read them without recognizing that this is proof of Christ. The answer to the question from a study standpoint, why do I know the New Testament is true? Because of the Old Testament. Because there are over a thousand prophecies in the Old Testament 
that are still being fulfilled right now as we speak. And Christ, everything that happened around the cross was written down a thousand years before he went to the cross. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, as we look into this letter to the Hebrews, which is a doctrinal masterpiece for us to understand who your son is, what you think of your son, and what you've established him to be. Lord, guide us through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, in John 17, 3, as he is praying, right before they arrest him, he gives us the definition of eternal life. He says, this is eternal life, that they would know you, Father, and that they would know the one you have sent. That's the definition in the Bible of eternal life. In Hebrews chapter 1, God the Father is saying, you need to know who my son is. So we get to know the Father through Hebrews chapter 1, and the Father is active in Hebrews chapter 1, lifting his son up to the highest position. We begin in verse 1. The author writes, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited. There are so many things here. We looked at some of them last week. The prophets and the authors of the Old Testament were God's speaking to us until his son. His son dies and and raises from the dead. We have the Gospels and we have the apostles sent by him with his message. So Jesus is the Logos. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So the Logos, the Word of God, is a person. The message of God is both through Christ and Christ. And then John goes on, through him all things were made. Nothing has has been made that he didn't make. He makes that vehement point here. The universe is made through him. In John chapter 1, there's nothing that was ever made that Christ didn't make. We talked about last week that the two most important miracles a person must come to and answer. The most important, did Jesus raise from the dead? If that answer is yes, and in a courtroom outside of the Bible, the evidence all says yes. So it's overwhelming. There is no history of ancient antiquities on planet Earth that doesn't include Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if it's secular or atheistic or what it is. This person lived, this person died, and the evidence is overwhelming that this person rose again. The second most important miracle isn't the birth of Christ, 
It's creation. So as soon as Christ is attacked in America, evolution steps in. And Satan says to this country that we live in, did God really say? So he is established first in John and first in Hebrews through his creative power that he is almighty God. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1, just one of the places where Paul is doctrinally defining the creative power, this spirit being, magnificent creative one, is given the name Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. We noted last week that in in Moses' hand, when he writes, in the beginning, Elohim, in the Hebrew manuscripts, he puts those two letters up next to Elohim, Aleph and Tav, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the last, meaning the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So Elohim is a plural for spirit being, but Moses denotes that it's the Son, that it's God's Son that created the heavens and the earth, that it's God's Son that declares, let there be light. So in Colossians chapter 1, Paul is defining Christ in verse 15. The Son, this is what we just read in Hebrews, is the image of the invisible God. Philip says to Jesus one day, show me the Father. And to paraphrase Jesus, he says, you're looking at him. He says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They are three individuals. One of them takes on flesh, and that is Christ. But as we read in Hebrews already, he is the exact representation of the Father. They're not similar. They're not alike in most ways. They are exactly alike, except for their experiences. So Paul says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He establishes that immediately. Creation is critical to a follower of Christ. We established that throughout the Old Testament last week. Verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So time, space, and matter. Stephen Hawking, who is not a believer in God, before he died said science has proven that there's a beginning. That time cannot exist without space and matter. Space cannot exist without time and matter. And matter cannot exist without time and space. So he concluded scientifically, as Einstein helped do that and 
and many of the philosophers and scientists have established through science that because of what we can see and observe in creation today, it is clear that there was a beginning, that time, space, and matter began at the exact time. What Stephen Hawking would refuse to do is recognize the cause as God. He does recognize that there's a cause. So Paul is emphatically saying here that everything in time, space, and matter was created in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ so that he would rule it all. So the very throne that God the Father sits on was created by his Son. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there are three heavens in the Bible. There is our atmosphere, there is the galaxies, and there is heaven, the highest. And everything in all three of them that was created was created by the Son. The angels that surround the Father, the throne that he sits on, heaven itself was spoken into existence by the Son. So what Paul is doing in Hebrews and in Colossians is saying, however high you lift Jesus, you're not lifting him high enough. You're not taking hold of what the Father is doing in describing him. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. In verse 9, he is carrying this on through the book of Colossians. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's the distinction between the Father and the Son. They were both spirit beings. They both are spirit beings, but the Son took on a bodily form. He had to do that for there to be a heaven that included us. Verse 10, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and every authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. He's not talking about what they did to boys in Israel. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Drop down to verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things to come. And then Paul gives us this doctrinal statement that we need to know. The reality, however, is found in Christ. What happened to the Sabbath? Why don't we worship 
on the Sabbath? Well, because Jesus raised from the dead. He's explaining that here. He nailed our sins to the cross, knowing in advance who would follow his son. Those who would follow his son were, Ephesians 1.4, placed in Christ in God's mind before the creation of the world because he nailed everything that said we were guilty to the cross so that we are actually raised with him in his understanding before creation. Christ is, is above all authorities, all rule, everything supreme, and we're in him. And if someone says theologically, why don't we worship on the Sabbath today? Because our Sabbath is found in Christ. The Sabbath has been moved from a day to a person. He says all of those things, the Sabbaths and the new moons and the festivals, were fulfilled in Christ. Once you're in Christ, those things are fulfilled. So we do worship them by worshiping Christ. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. As I said, and I, and I still struggle with the best way to do this, I'm going to read the rest of Hebrews chapter 1 and understand that all of this from verse 5 through verse 14 is from the Psalms. So Paul is taking notes and, and, and the, the thing that we should do that I would encourage you to do is say, okay, where in the Psalms is this? Read that Psalm. Where in the Psalms is this? Read that Psalm. There's only one quote here that isn't from a Psalm and it's from 2 Samuel 7 and we will look at that today and see the uniqueness of God's prophesying through David. We don't think of David as a prophet. He's a king who is the precursor of the king. He's a prophet who is the precursor of the prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 18. David is the one who is speaking primarily in these psalms as Paul is preaching to us. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. That's one of the two of the, that's one of the three primary psalms of the messianic psalms. So we'll explain when we get to 2 Samuel, when David is about to die and he's going to put his son on the throne, God says, I'm going to use your son and you, David, as a picture of you as father and you as son in heaven. So he gives this psalm through David as David is about to coronate Solomon on the throne and he says, you are my son, today I have become your father. But it's not David speaking, it's God speaking. So Paul knows that this is applied to Christ and he gives that to us in Hebrews, reading on. Or again, and this is the only quote outside of the Psalms, and it's the middle of a, the Davidic covenant promise with David. I will be his father and he will be my son originally about Solomon, fulfilled in Christ. Verse 6, And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels worship him. So, in Psalm 97, we're familiar with it from an old Michael W. Smith song where this person says, The Lord reigns, let the earth be get glad, let the 
let all of the world proclaim God, and then we come to that middle of the psalmist, which is where they stop in that particular case, and he says, let all those who worship images be put to shame. The next verse says, worship him, all you gods, small g, Elohim, angels. And Paul's saying that Psalms 97 is a messianic psalm speaking about Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in speaking of the angels, he says, Psalms 104, verse 4, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Verse 8, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 are verses 8 and 9. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Someone knocks on your door and says, I'm a witness. Um, I believe what you believe, which is usually how the conversation starts. And they hand you a copy of the watchtower and they begin to tell you that they believe in Jesus, that they, they believe that he died for their sins. Don't you believe that too? That he's our only hope. Don't you believe that too? Yes, I believe that too. Question to that person, do you believe Jesus is God? No, we don't. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. That's God the Father in Psalm 45 speaking about God the Son. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, listen to this. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. This, as you have in your notes here, this is God the Father announcing, ordaining, and anointing his Son highest. Therefore, God the Son, your God the Father, lifts you and anoints you with the oil of joy. So the supremacy in Colossians 1.18, so that he might have supremacy over everything. Who says so? His Father does. His Father says, your throne, O God is exalted to the highest place. Paul is helping us understand the position of Christ in the eyes of his Father. Verse 10, the Father also says to the Son, In the beginning, Lord, you, my Son, laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So in Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, David speaks prophetically so that if you haven't figured it out by now, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, God the Father wants you to know that's his son. My son, you created the heavens and the earth. So Paul, when we read in Colossians, he's not writing something new. 
is helping us understand that God the Son said, let there be light, and there was light. God the Son created the heavens and the earth. God the Son created the throne that the Father sits on. God the Son created the angels that surround the throne. God the Son created the galaxies we're not even aware of yet to show us the expanse of the one who went to the cross. Not only to understand what he went to, but where he came from. This highest exalted one humbled himself to take my sins to the cross. Paul is saying, do you understand who this person is? Verse 11, <clears throat> they, the heavens and the earth in their current condition, will perish, but you, my son, you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, Joel chapter 2. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Psalm 110 verse 1, sit at my right hand until your enemies are a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We will understand that verse clearer than I ever have from what is really being said there. Um, not referring to my salvation and my relationship to an angel because of that, but God's magnificent plan and who the servants are, me and them, serving together the creator of all things. Turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, <clears throat> to give some background to it, David is near the end of his life, and his heart is overwhelmed with the desire to build a temple for God. He has, more than most who have lived by this time, understood what we are studying today, and he wants the earth to have a magnificent temple that points to him, God the Father says through Nathan the prophet, it's good that you have this in your heart, but you're not the right person because you're a warrior. You're a man of warfare. So he's going to give him a covenant that says two things in this covenant. Number one, David, I want you to know that when the Messiah comes, he will be born in your line. He will be a direct descendant of you. He will sit on his throne and he will reign forever. And number two, I want you to know that one of your sons, Solomon, will be a picture of him and that that line from all the children that David had, too many, we won't get into that, there's one that points straight to the Messiah and his name is Solomon. So 
God is speaking in the midst of this Davidic covenant, the covenant that he made with David, beginning in verse 11, right in the middle of the verse there, if you can see where it begins, the Lord, that's where we begin reading. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be, this is a direct quote that we read in Hebrews chapter 1, the only one that is not from the psalm, I will be his father and he will be my son. So God the Father is giving him this messianic picture of the Messiah and God the Father. And he is explaining to David that the picture now is going to be you as father, Solomon as son. And when I send my son to earth to sit on his throne forever, he will come in that same line. So because of all this, I am saying of your son Solomon, I will be his father and he will be my son. But the phrase points to Jesus. So what happens to David as he receives this near the end of his life? He writes Psalms 2, he writes Psalms 72, and he writes Psalms 110, which are coronation messianic psalms about Christ and his throne in relationship to what happens with he and Solomon, fully understanding Solomon and David are types, they're pictures. Remember we read um, in Colossians chapter 2 that the things in the Old Testament were pictures of the realities. David and Solomon are pictures of God the Father and God the Son. Well, we've already been reading what God the Father does with the Son. He exalts him to the highest place. So let's go to one of those psalms, Psalm chapter 2. One of the three psalms David writes in response to this covenant being given to him. Understand that these psalms here are literally God speaking and David writing down. And he is writing this in real time. So what's really happening, we, Terry and I just read through 2 Samuel, what's really happening is Adonijah, a son by another woman, says, give me Abishag, who is the, the woman taking care of David and is late in his life. And he asks Bathsheba, she says, okay. And then she tells Nathan the prophet, he goes, what are you doing? He's trying to take the throne from Solomon, and God promised it to Solomon. That's exactly what Adonijah was doing. So in that turmoil, the, God is speaking prophetically about all of the nations against God, and David is speaking in real time about what's happening. Verse 1, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. 
the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So Paul quotes that multiple times in Hebrews. This statement is so important to our understanding of God's plans. The nations and, and going against God that's happening in 2022. It was happening, this is written a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. And David is prophesying and speaking here. And the father says, you have my son, today I have become your father. Earlier he says, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then he goes on to say, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. He is saying, I'll put you on a throne and the world will only look to you. He's pointing to the millennial kingdom that is promised back in 2 Samuel to be a descendant in the line of David. Turn in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 45, another messianic psalm. Again, the, just I would encourage you to read each of these psalms. Um, there are 17. They're either called royal or messianic psalms that all picture Christ. And Paul is teaching us about the deity and the authority and the sovereignty of Christ from these psalms. So, um, verse 5 let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. And then here's what we just read in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And then let's look how verse 8 starts. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh. They brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh was brought there to anoint him for his death at his birth. And then Nicodemus and Mary Magdalene and Joseph of Arimathea anointed him again. And Mary, Martha's sister, anointed him with something like myrrh. Myrrh is an anointing preserving oil, and it's in this psalm here. And I listened to um, Jack Hibbs and this Jewish man in a podcast this week. What a joy to listen to it. This Jewish man is loved by um, Christians more than he is by Jews. He acknowledges that the New Testament is ordained by God. He believes that we worship the same Messiah, but he doesn't believe Jesus is God. He needs to read Psalms 45, where his Hebrew scriptures have God the Father calling his son 
God. Your throne, O God, is quoted from the psalmist. It's not originated in the New Testament. The truth has always been there. Turn to Psalm 90. Well, let's go to Psalm 102. I already quoted to you from Psalm 97. Worship him, all you gods. In Psalm 102, another important messianic psalm. It's it's so hard to know where to begin. This psalm um, is a praise of the creation power of the Son. And Paul quotes from there in Hebrews chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 12. But you, Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come for her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high from heaven and he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, the release of those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. Do you see the gospel being preached in this psalm? that he hears the cries of the prisoners, those condemned to death. He comes into Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. He takes the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it up to what we know as Isaiah 61, and he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to release the prisoners and to set the captives free. He sets it down, and he says to them, this is happening today. I'm here And David wrote about this a thousand years earlier. Isaiah wrote those verses 700 years before Christ. And Jesus said, I'm here. I'm here to set you free. I won't deny you if you come to me and repent. Verse 21. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples of the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. In the course of my life, he broke my strength. He cut short my days. So I said, do not take me away, my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations. And then here's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, 
and your years will never end. Turn to um, Mark in the interest of time. Mark chapter, actually let's go to Psalms 110 before we leave the Psalms. Psalms 110 is one of the two most quoted Messianic Psalms by Jesus and Paul. It is one of the three that, as I said, David wrote this after God gave him the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah in the line of Solomon. So he's literally listening to God the Father speaking to God the Son. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We just read that in Hebrews 1. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. This is when Christ comes to set up his kingdom. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 7, we will get into that. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and so he will lift his head high. He is prophesying the second coming of Christ. He is saying when he comes, he will judge the nations. Revelation 16, Revelation 14, Revelation 19, Revelation all through the tribulation, David is prophesying this here. He's going to come. He's going to restore Zion. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to heap up the dead. He's going to judge the rulers of the whole earth when he comes. The Lord has sworn in the midst of all this and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, which Paul will explain to us in the book of Hebrews. He is sitting in heaven currently waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. We just read that. Now turn to Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. And we looked at this on Easter Sunday and the week before. The Jews have been trying for three and a half years to sentence Jesus to death. And they can't do it. Why? Because his executors are Romans. They want him out of the temple. They want him out of religion. They want him out of his messianic reign. But none of those reasons are going to satisfy the Romans. So when he goes on trial in the Sanhedrin... He says, it's my time now. I'll give you the reason. I'll put myself on the cross. I'll give you what you can give to Rome. So as he's on trial in Mark chapter 14, verse 60, then the high priest stood up before him and asked Jesus, this picture here, they're coming up with all of these accusations. He did this. He said he's going to restore the temple. He's going to do all these things. And, and Caiaphas stands up and he walks up to Jesus and he looks him in the eye. You're going to answer me. Think of this. 
the priest forever, highest priest, is being told by an earthly priest, you're going to answer me. So in verse 60, the high priest stood before him and asked Jesus, are you going to answer? What is this testimony that the men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? He's been silent this whole time. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's about five references to Jesus being God and Jesus being king. Messiah is king to them. Son of man is Daniel 7.13. When Daniel sees Jesus in the middle of the tribulation come to the Father and the Father hands him the deed to the earth and he says, all authority, all power, all sovereignty is yours, my son. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. I am the one seated at the right hand of the Father, and you'll see me sit there. And he says, when I come, I will come on the clouds of heaven. All of those say, I am God. We've got him. They go talk to Pilate. Pilate's first question after the Jews talk to him, so you're a king. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would put an end to this. So you are a king, as you have said. They had their reason. Turn to Acts chapter 2, when he rose from the dead, and Peter on that night was fleeing, distraught, denying Christ. He is asked to preach to feed the lambs, and he is preaching about this in his first sermon. Acts chapter 2 and verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God. What he is saying to Caiaphas is, when I'm seated at the right hand, I will have proven to you that this is true. And Caiaphas would have known about Christ rising from the dead. They tried to hide it, but they would have known of it. Verse 32 again. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, Psalms 110 and verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He is exactly what he said he was. He is risen from the dead. He is on his throne. And when his enemies are finished being put under his feet, he will come back. Turn to Acts chapter 3, Peter's second message. 
verse 19. This is the same thing he told them to do in chapter 2, if we went to verse 38. In verse 19 of Acts chapter 3, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Those two aspects there, the times of refreshing is Christ on his throne in the millennium, repenting for your sins so that you can be born again. Verse 20, And that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Verse 22, for Moses said, this is Deuteronomy 18.18, and Peter is confirming that he was talking about Jesus. For Moses said, the Lord God, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me among your people. You must listen to everything he says. What does he say in the Great Commission? Baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have commanded. That was prophesied by Moses 1,445 years before Christ was born. Turn now in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're just kind of going across the surface and we're seeing how this is carried from Moses to David to um, Jesus to Peter. And now Paul is giving us the doctrines of the church. That's the primary reason that I am sure he wrote Hebrews is because wherever doctrine is being taught, in your Bible, to the church, it is the Apostle Paul teaching it. So he is teaching the doctrine of the resurrection and the essential nature of it in chapter 15. We pick it up in verse 19. If only for this life we hope in Christ, we are of all people most pitied. For Christ has indeed raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We read about that in the Psalms. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. From the Psalms, from Hebrews, from all those places we read today. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. So Paul tells us doctrinally that he must remain in heaven. He can't come back until when he comes back, he will destroy his last enemy. In Hebrews chapter 10, I don't know if I told you 10 or 12, chapter 10 and verse 12, we will get to this in a few weeks, he says, But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, 
had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Drawing that all the way from David a thousand years before Christ. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. This is John explaining to us when the last enemy of God will be destroyed. Notice creation is critical. Recreation. We see recreation, and it's not something new. It's refurbished. We see Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Satan has already gone from being Lucifer to Satan. God said, let there be light. John 1, 5 says, the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He has brought light back to his creation. We see the earth destroyed with a flood and refurbished post-flood. We will see at the end of the tribulation something similar. When we get to Revelation chapter 20, what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3 is that when all the elements will be destroyed, not with water, but with fire. So if you think of this in realms, on the realm of earth, everything will be burned and laid bare and made back to, according to Isaiah and Ezekiel, what the Garden of Eden was like, what the original creation was like before sin contaminated it. In heaven, what is happening is it is preparing to bring the kingdom and the city to earth. In between those two is a judgment of the lost. Lost angels and lost humans. So that death can be wiped out before heaven comes to earth. So John is explaining this in chapter 20 and verse 11 when he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This is Christ. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. It's in between the two where he is going to deal with sin. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done. This is only lost people as recorded in the books. Thank God we will not pay for every sin we've committed. They will. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each person was judged according to what they had done. So we see this abyss of angels, and we see this holding place called Hades, and they're all brought together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, in the first couple of verses, we will judge them both. We will be in an arena as believers where Christ is on a throne, and unfortunately people that we knew will come and say, we went to church, we, we, we used your name, we sang the songs, And if they hadn't repented and given their life to Christ, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And we will be drenched in tears. You know, the only verse in the Bible that says he will wipe away the tears is after this event. 
There will be no more tears after this event, but there will be many tears as a result of it. So all of the angels who have fallen are brought before Christ to be sentenced. Every lost person from Cain to the end of the millennium will be brought before Christ to be judged. Death and Hades will be emptied out in front of this throne. He will judge them. He will deal with them. He will put them in hell. And nothing on the surface of the earth will ever be contaminated by sin again. We will not even have desires to sin. We will be pure at that time. Finishing out verse 15. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book was thrown into the lake of fire. So we just read in 1 Corinthians 15 the doctrine of this. He's in heaven waiting for all his enemies to be made his footstool, and his last enemy is death. He is going to destroy death here. Nothing will die after this. There will be no mourning. There will be no tears. Isaiah says that he will take away our memories of the past. He has to. Because you and I are going to know people that will bring tears. And he's going to take that away so that only joy and newness and things that we cannot describe will be left. We talked about angels being servants. Let's look at a verse in Revelation 19, verse 9, in closing. I always took that verse to mean that each one of us has an angel and, and they watch over us. And I did some deep dive into this. That's not what is being taught there. Um, what is being taught there is the Psalms and the things that we read from the Psalms. And in chapter 19... In verse 10, we kind of see a clear picture of this. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for it is the spirit of prophecy that bears testimony to Jesus. That's a pretty accurate picture of Hebrews 1.14. Angels who didn't fall are servants with us. What's their purpose? Serve Christ. What's our purpose? Serve Christ. What does he say to John? I'm a servant just like you. Worship God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promises that lie ahead and the certainty of them through the fulfilled promises when Jesus came the first time. Lord, challenge us this week to share with someone how amazing your son is. In Jesus' name, amen.